a great day again, a great weekend, I should say, again over at the uh, new building. We're excited about what took place there, and again, it was just, uh, um, man, I mean, I don't know, ladies, let me just say it this way, you ought to be proud of your fellas, man, these guys, these men, and they were going crazy over there, I mean, in a good way, you know, not, not like they go crazy at your house, I'm talking about in a good way, where they actually got something accomplished, you know. It was amazing. I mean, they, you talk about some hard workers. We got some hard workers in this, this church, and we're excited about that. And we did. We got a number of things accomplished, and we were very, very glad to see how it started coming together. There's a number of things that still need done. Obviously, a lot of work that will be taking place over the next months and so forth. But uh, for right now, we're taking some time off here for a few weeks. But we certainly were thankful and grateful for you men that came out. And again, for all that was accomplished and uh, just... Uh, I thank a number of you who were praying for us. We didn't have any major injuries, uh, nothing big, maybe a scratch here or there. I know I've got a a war wound right here. I'm looking at it. It's, wow, reminiscent of those rough, tough days. But uh, here we are. And some of these guys are sore. You'll have to pardon them. They're not young like I am. And... uh, (laughs) You know, but, you know, that'll be okay, you know. But anyway, we did. It turned out great. Brother Cavanaugh was leading that up for us. He did a fabulous job and, like I say, uh, uh, just turned out so well and had such a sweet fellowship, really. The guys, it's, it's, there's nothing like working together and just getting in there and getting something accomplished and looking back and saying, man, look at that, how different it looks because we put forth an effort. And I think, i got to believe that those men are starting to catch a vision that maybe we need to catch in our church. They're seeing what can be. And boy, it's going to be awesome. You know, God's really going to use it, and uh, we're excited about it. And uh, so anyway, uh, we're going to go ahead and get things moving along here today. We're talking about relationships again. The series is The Art of Others. And last week I began a series, or should I say a message, called The Tools of the Trade. It was called Tools of the Trade. Now, I got through about three and a half of those tools. There's six of them that I wanted to share. And so I'm going to basically sum up very quickly the first couple, and we're going to jump into the fourth one that we started, and we're going to go ahead and maybe nail it down a little bit today. So if you could with me, uh, can you turn to Psalm chapter 133, verse 1? We're only going to read one verse, and then we're going to start right there, and and then we're going to get get moving along here today. And uh, I hope that it will be a help to you. And uh, I'm sure it will. Uh, It's coming from His Word. That's the most important thing. Psalm chapter 133, verse 1. We read this verse. It says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. How good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. God's a big fan of fellowship and, and dwelling together in unity. Oneness. Uh, boy, relationships, that's what it's about, really. The Christian life's a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so relationships are so awfully important in our lives. And we have found, uh, as we've been studying here, that there's a mountain of evidence that, that backs that up, that healthy and satisfying relationships are one of the most important factors to both happiness and health. And so we see that, that it's not only something that's scientifically correct, but that God all along has been trying to help us out, trying to protect us from ourselves at times. He's trying to ensure that our relationships are such that they're producing positive results in our life as well. And so relationships are so important. And we said that dealing with relationships is an art. It is an art. 
And uh, Webster defines an art as a skill or dexterity or the power of performing certain actions acquired by experience, study, or observation. So basically, an art is something you have to be taught or you have to observe and learn. And so we know that when we deal with relationships, we talk about the art of others. We're talking about uh, uh, learning things or tools or learning different principles that will enable us to have the kind of relationships that will be positive, that ultimately offer us, I mean, very um, strong, stable, and satisfying relationships. That's what I want in my life, and I know that's what you want in your life. And so we see that this relationship thing is an art. And so we said, who better to learn from then than Jesus Christ, who is the perfect example? And so we began to note the Lord Jesus Christ and some of the characteristics and qualities and some of the tools that he had in his tool bag. And we noted that one of those things was that he was concerned for others. He was concerned for others. The second thing we noted was that he was considerate of others. And then we said that he was patient with others. Wow. Now that's a tough one, isn't it? To be patient with people. Even our own family. Sometimes the hardest people to be patient with are those we're closest to. Sometimes we expect so much out of our own that we forget that they're just human like we are. You know, you take our children, our teenagers, and our youngsters, and sometimes, if we're not careful, we can almost be so impatient with them that we discourage them. Now, I'm not saying that we permit them to go along being rebellious and disobedient, but sometimes they're going to make mistakes along the way, but we're not very patient at times. Sometimes we get all over them, sometimes we jump on their back, and when it's areas and some things that maybe they weren't in full control of, and and we just assume that they should have been... Uh, accomplishing it in a much more efficient manner and we just get all bent out of shape. But we need to learn to be patient with people. People make mistakes. And the biggest person that I know that makes mistakes is me. And so because I make them, I ought to show other people the same, same uh, regard that I would expect from others. And so patient. Jesus was patient with people. So if you want to note the, some of the tools in the arsenal of Jesus Christ, some of the, the, the tools that He possessed that helped him with the art of others, that enables us to also be effective in relationships? Concern, consideration, patience. And then we started on number four, and we'll begin here today. We started talking about forgiveness. That Jesus was forgiving toward others. And this one here is so vital, so awfully important. And it's one that we must address at length versus just that little bit that we touched on last week. So I want to talk to you a little bit today about that along with a couple of others, hopefully, that we can get to before the end of service today. So let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll move forward. Father, I want to thank you for this opportunity to be here today. Lord, this is what all the prayer is about right now. We've spent hours praying, asking you to bless this service, asking you to speak to our hearts, asking you, Father, to prepare us for something greater in the future. Lord, today there's people from all walks of life here, people from all kind of different backgrounds, and yet, Lord, each and every one of us need the same person, you, Lord Jesus. Each and every one of us need the same thing, the Word of God. And each and every one of us need to respond the same way in obedience. Father, may each of us today now open our hearts to you, your Word and Holy Spirit, and may you bring about change in our life that's so desperately needed 
And may you speak to our hearts and help us to understand how imperative and important this area of forgiveness is. And Lord, as we touch on other aspects in the art of others, may you help us to grasp them and to receive them and to apply them to our life as well so that we too can have strong, stable, and satisfying relationships. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. He was forgiving toward others. Now, unforgiveness is the single most popular prison that the enemy uses against God's people. And it is one of the most it is one of the deadliest poisons a person can take spiritually. There's a number of things that you could permit in your life that would not be even remotely close to being as harmful as unforgiveness. I mean, unforgiveness causes everything from mental depression to health issues. After the Civil War, Robert E. Lee, he visited a Kentucky lady who had taken him in, uh, who uh, who took him to the remains of a grand old tree in front of her house. There she just, she bitterly cried. She cried and whined and complained that the limbs and the trunk had been destroyed by the federal artillery fire. She looked to Lee for a word of condemning a condemnation toward, the, toward the, the north and at least to sympathize with her loss, of course. And after brief silence, Lee looked at her in the eye and said, Cut it down, my dear madam, and forget it. It's better to forgive the injustices of the past than to allow them to remain. Let bitterness take root and poison the rest of our life. Boy, bitterness will poison your life. I mean to tell you that unforgiveness is a poison. And it ultimately locks you in a prison. In John chapter 8, Jesus is approached by the scribes and the Pharisees seeking to excuse him of doing wrong. They're trying to find a reason why he's not who he claims to be. That he's not so much God as he says he is. And they, of course, bring him a woman, obviously that had been taken in adultery. And we began to touch on this last week. But the fact is is that when it was all said and done, Jesus Christ looks at that woman and, and, and looks at that crowd and says, He who is without, the first, uh, without sin, let him cast the first stone. And before it's over with, everybody departs. And there remains a woman standing before the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm sure she had been caught in adultery. I'm sure, probably, more than likely, she had done what was claimed to have been done, or at least had done something inappropriate. However, Jesus looks at her and says, Go and sin no more. Jesus Christ forgave that woman. Jesus Christ forgave her like He will forgive you and like He forgave me, and like He'll continue to forgive us along life's journey if we'll simply come to Him. Jesus Christ was a perfect example of forgiveness. And although those religious leaders were confounded, and sought to confound Him even, man, He triumphed. I love that Jesus Christ always tripped them up, messed them up, and confused them. Forgiveness is a characteristic that Jesus possessed and He promoted even while on the cross, even while in excruciating pain, Jesus found it within Himself to forgive. I want, uh, is the air's not on. Turn it on. It's, it's, it's heating up in here a little bit. I know some of you ladies are going, no! 
Wait till you feel how hot it gets in here. This pulpit's going to be lighting up. No. He'd be like, please shut her down. No, you won't. I'm joking. Then again, maybe not. We'll see. Whatever the Lord wants. But anyway, even while he was agonizing on the cross, Jesus Christ found it within himself to forgive. Look, if you will, in the book of Luke, chapter 23, if you have your Bible. Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 33. We're going to read two verses there. Luke chapter 23, verse 33. When they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified Him. The malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They parted His raiment and cast lots. There he was on the cross of Calvary. And even there in the midst of that pain and that suffering, that agony, bearing the guilt and the shame and the sin of the world, Jesus Christ could say, Father, forgive them. You know, the Bible teaches that we are to forgive. Even as Christ himself demonstrated on Calvary, as he demonstrated it in his life work, we too are to forgive men and women, boys and girls. The Bible says in Ephesians 4:32 and be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Let's just be honest, most of you forgiving people, and again, you don't forgive somebody unless you've probably been hurt by them, but we view forgiving people who hurt us as really being difficult or hard, don't we? That's a hard thing. Most people say, man, you're asking me to do the impossible. Forgive that person who harmed me, who hurt me. From our perspective, it can seem so unfair that they who, that they who harmed us should be the ones who forgiven or forgiven. They who hurt us should be able to be free. I mean, let's face it, we're the ones that hurt. We're the ones that they, they, they uh, maligned or mistreated. And yet they're going to have freedom even though they didn't pay the price for the pain they caused me? I don't think they deserve forgiveness. I don't think they should experience forgiveness or freedom. They hurt me. But don't be fooled. That perspective is a lie from Satan and it's going to keep you in bondage. And although we're to forgive for Christ's sake, according to Ephesians 4.32, it is equally true that when you choose to forgive someone that's harmed or hurt you, there is no one more helped than you. I want to take a moment and I want to share an excerpt from Corey Ten Boom's book, I'm Still Learning to Forgive. Corey Ten Boom, as we'll note here in this writing, was a was in a concentration camp, a German concentration camp, for hiding Jews in her home. She goes on and begins by saying, It was in a church in Munich that I saw him. A balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. 
People were filing out of the basement room where I'd just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to, de- to defeat Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land. And I gave them my favorite mental picture, maybe because the sea is never far from Hollanders' minds. I, I like to think that that's where... Forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest oceans, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions about a, uh, after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence. In silence collected their wraps and silence left the room. And that's when I saw him. That's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. Next, a blue uniform and visored cap with its skull crossed, uh, with its, its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister frail from a, a, a frail uh, from ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment uh, skin. Betsy, how thin were you? Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fräulein. How good is it to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take the hand. He would not remember me, of course. I mean, how could he remember one prisoner from among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather cap swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he didn't remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian I know that God has forgiven me from the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Proline, again the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I whose sins had again and again to be forgiven and could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I'd ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you don't forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars 
Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still, I stood there with the coldest clutching, with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Help! Help! I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. See, forgiveness unlocked a door to Corey Ten Boom's heart that permitted the bitterness to pour out and the love of God to flow in. See, there was no one who benefited more from her willingness to forgive than her. And if you ever hope to experience strong, stable, and satisfying relationships with others, you must be willing to forgive others. Unforgiveness will only devour you and it will torture your mind and your body. Jesus Christ, our greatest example, teaches us the art of others. One of the greatest tools in His bag is that He was willing to forgive others. Not only forgiveness, but number five, He was selfless concerning others. Not only forgiving of others, but he was selfless concerning others. He was selfless in surrendering his deity. When I speak of surrendering his deity, I'm not talking or saying that Jesus was not God on earth. He was. The Bible tells us that he was Emmanuel, God with us. We know that. However, the scriptures plainly teach that he matured as any other. In the book of Luke, chapter 2, verse 52, the Bible says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. That means He grew in wisdom. Mentally, He grew. In stature, physically, He grew. In favor with God, spiritually, He grew. And He grew, the Bible says, in favor with man. That means socially, He grew. It wasn't that he lost his deity or ceased to be God, but that he voluntarily laid it aside in the most unselfish and humble act in history. I love Philippians chapter 2. If you have your Bible, turn there, would you please? Philippians chapter 2, verse 7 through 8. Notice what the Scriptures teach us and tell us about Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 7 through 8. It says here, But made himself of no reputation, 
and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. I mean, he came to earth and he permitted his very creation to humble him by placing him on a cruel cross, nailing those nails in his hands and in his feet. There he stood, raised between heaven and earth, naked, before the creation. God himself humbled himself and permitted man to do what he did to him. All for the hope that we would be restored into fellowship with Him. I mean, if you ever hope to enjoy strong, stable, and satisfying relationships with others, you are going to have to learn to humble yourself as Christ did. Humility is a must. When it comes to restoring a broken relationship or fellowship, whether it's with a child or a spouse or possibly a friend or family member, Someone has to be Christ-like. Someone has to humble themselves and reach out. If you're waiting for them to reach out without the power of Christ in their life, you're wrong. They won't. You need to do it, and so do I. Well, how do I restore this situation, my... Daughter, my son will not speak to me. My, my dad or my mother won't speak to me. My aunt or my uncle was upset after that picnic and we can't never talk again. How do I deal with that? Well, I'll guarantee you it'll never get fixed till you humble yourself. You gotta humble yourself. Someone has to reach out. Someone has to be like Jesus. Well, I'm just gonna wait for them. And you'll be waiting ten years from now. More than likely, twenty years from now. And you'll die wishing to God you had humbled yourself and restored that relationship, either on their deathbed or your own. I see it all the time. Funerals and children with strange mamas and daddies almost. They're just like they never existed. And all of a sudden, mama's there in a casket. A child comes up and begins to weep and cry feeling guilt and as though they messed up their life. I wish I would have said I was sorry. I wish I'd have came back and told Mama I was sorry. They wouldn't humble themselves. And now they'll live with it the rest of their life. I want to encourage you, don't live with broken relationships. Take steps to restore them. And one of the great steps is that you are willing to humble yourself first. And then be willing to forgive as Jesus did. Jesus Christ was selfless in His surrendering of His deity. He surrendered. He humbled Himself so that He could provide us restoration so that fellowship could be possible between us and Him and between us and God. And that's the same tool we need in our box if we're going to function properly in the art of others. He was selfless in surrendering His deity. He was selfless in serving mankind. Jesus had received the news that His cousin, John the Baptist, had been beheaded. 
Undoubtedly, his heart ached for John, I'm sure, his heart ached for the family itself. He was only six months older than Jesus Christ, and I'm, 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 I'm almost positive there were times in their lives when he could reminisce and go back and remember playing and running up and down through the sand dunes with John, his cousin, hiding and playing, uh, going out and playing hide-and-seek. I'm sure he remembers those early years, and then he remembers how at some point there in his life, John took the place of the one who had go before Jesus and herald the message of repentance. And Jesus and John were knit at their very early age, and they grew up believing that indeed they were going to do something unique and special on behalf of God. And there he hears the news that John... John, his cousin, John, his fellow laborer, John, his companion, John, his family members, dead. Oh, how his mother must feel and how his nephews and nieces must feel. His heart was burdened and heavy that day. And so the Bible tells us that Jesus went apart to be unto himself, to get alone. Matthew chapter 14, verse 12, and his disciples came and took up the body and, excuse me, and the Bible says, and... uh, His disciples came and took up the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard of it, he departed thence by ship into a desert place apart. He just had to get away. And when the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them. And he healed their sick. I mean, picture that. Here he is in the desert all by himself. Grieving the death of his cousin. Concerned for his family and his, even his own mother. Trying to find perspective. Trying to make sense of everything. Again, remember that Jesus Christ knows what you went through. What I go through. He knows our hurts. He was tempted like as we are, yet without sin, the Bible says. He knew the feeling of pain and separation and what death brought about in life. And here he was, separated there. I can see him sitting over there in the desert on, the, on a sand dune trying to get away, hiding by the, the shade of a tree. And all of a sudden, there are people starting to stream out into the desert. Oh, great, here they come. I can only imagine if it was me, I'd be like, no, 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 no. I just want to be alone. To grieve in my own way. But there they came anyway. In need of healing and help. And Jesus looks over the multitude and His heart breaks for them. He sees their great need and He says, I know I'm hurting and my heart's breaking, but they're in much more need than I am. How can I turn them away? I must serve them. And he had compassion toward them and he healed their sick. See, he was selfless in serving mankind. You say, what's this have to do with relationships? I don't know about you, but can I just be so bold to say this? I love going home to my mama's house because my mama still serves me. I love it. That woman be on her deathbed and get out of bed and make me something to eat if I stop by the house. You know what I'm saying? 
There's something about mom. There's something about going back home. I, it's a wonderful thing. My mom is a servant. Well, I'm going to tell you something. Moms, if your kids don't visit you, maybe you ought to serve them a little bit more. Hold on now. Don't be, don't be getting upset with me now. We're talking about the art of others. I'm talking about relationships. You start serving people, they'll want to be around you. And listen, I want to be around Jesus Christ because every time I get around Him, He actually does more for me than I could ever do for Him. Jesus Christ was selfless. He always put others ahead of Himself. And it was obvious. And in this case, He did just that. Not only was He selfless in surrendering His deity, selfless in serving mankind, but He was selfless in suffering on Calvary. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, the Bible says in about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus Christ forsaken, forsaken, excuse me, forsaken, because he bore my sin, your sin. Jesus Christ, selfless in suffering on Calvary, when he could have said, angels, come rescue me. He willingly took His place on Calvary and He died in my place. He paid for my sin. He personally sacrificed Himself on my behalf. And He did that just for you too. In Ernest Gordon's Miracle on the River Kwai, he tells a story. Scottish soldiers faced by their Japanese captors were forced to labor on a jungle railroad. They had degenerated to barbarous behavior. And one afternoon, something happened. A shovel was missing. The officer in charge became enraged. He, he demanded that the missing shovel be produced or else. When no one in the squadron budged, the officer got his gun and threatened to kill every last one of them. Right on the spot. It was obvious that this officer meant business and he meant what he said. So, finally, after just a moment, one man stepped forward. The officer put away his gun, picked up a shovel, and beat the man to death. When it was over, the survivors picked up the bloody corpse and carried it with them to the second tool check. This time, no shovel was missing. Do you understand what just happened? There had been a miscount. Rather than see all his comrades die, he stepped up and said, I'll pay the price. That's what Jesus did for you and I. The penalty of sin is death, and each and every last one of us deserves to pay the ultimate price for our sin. And 2,000 years ago, the God of heaven, Jesus Christ, 
came to earth and took His place on Calvary. I'll die for Mark. I'll die for these people. Instead of all of us spending eternity separated from God forever in the lake of fire, Jesus Christ paid it all. All to Him I owe. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Talking about relationships today. And the need to be selfless. It's one of the tools in Jesus' arsenal. I mean, He hath borne our griefs, He carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and with His stripes we are healed. What we're saying is that if you hope to have a strong, stable, and satisfying relationship with someone, you're going to have to consciously take a back seat to others. I just don't understand why all my relationships fall to pieces. Hey, before you blame everyone else, have you died to self? I mean, are you, have you come to the place where you put others ahead of self, consciously determined to do so? We live in a culture and we live in an America that today is all about me. Everything is about my comfort. Everything's about my pleasure. Everything's about my, me, I. Is there any wonder we are failing in this area of relationship? I mean, I bake a cake and I hand it to you. And if you don't light up like a Christmas tree, and if you don't smile from ear to ear, and if you don't thank me profusely and write me a little thank you note, I'm offended. I did that for you, brother. How dare you not thank me? Who'd you really do that for? Why would you be so offended? Jesus healed ten lepers. Only one thanked him, but I don't see Jesus complaining. He just said, where are the nine? Where are they at? And everybody runs around going, well, obviously nine of them weren't healed. Nobody says that. We all know they were healed. Well, you led how many to Christ? Where are they all at? Were they healed or weren't they? I don't know. If they meant business with Christ, they're saved as you are sitting in that pew. i got a responsibility to go drag them into church maybe and try to help them get where they need to be. But I'll tell you something. Jesus Christ gives and gives and gives. And you don't know something? We treat Him like an old suit. We put Him on and we take Him off. We walk on Him like an old carpet. We treat Him like He's nothing half the time. Does Jesus just give up on us? Does He throw in the towel? Does He say, I quit? No! That's because he is selfless. In every one of your relationships, every relationship, your marriage, your parenting, your family, and your friendships, you must be selfless. It's one of the tools in the bag if you're going to be successful in the art of others. Last, as I close, 
I want you to know that Jesus Christ was inviting to all. He was inviting. See what do you mean? Well, in Matthew chapter 11, he says, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I mean, Jesus had preached and he had taught the people concerning the kingdom. I mean, he had healed the sick, the lame, the halt, and the blind. He had restored the lepers and he had raised the dead. Jesus had given himself like no other had ever given himself. And yet, the people wanted none of it. As a matter of fact, they attacked the very character of our Lord. In Matthew, just a a few verses before that, they had said, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He hath a devil. The Son of Man hath come eating and drinking, and they say, Behold a man gluttonous. And a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. I mean, they accuse him of being fleshly. They go as far as to say he is nothing more than a common drunk. Jesus is a drunk. That's what they said. Can you imagine that? That's what they said. That's what they accused him of. After everything he had done... After all the people he'd healed, all the families he'd restored, all the souls he had saved, he's a common drunk. That's what they said. And yet, although it was within his power and right to discard such a wicked and rebellious crowd, Jesus stands and opens up his arms to those who had maligned and mistreated him. He invites those who had sought his demise and those who had slandered his character back into the fold. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Come unto me. He was inviting to all, even those who did not show him any respect. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? Not only did he invite them back into the fold and into fellowship with him, but he offered them a tremendous benefit. I will give you rest unto your souls. (laughs) You've treated me worse than anyone can imagine. But if you'll come to me, I'll still give you rest. And he was so inviting, even when they didn't deserve it. The Bible says in Revelation twenty-two seventeen, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. You say, I'm such a sinner, preacher. You can't imagine what I've done in my life. Oh, I may not be old. I may not have lived many years. But if you're taking up and you're putting it on a scale, I'm telling you, it weighs down on the sin side. There's nothing good about me, preacher. I want you to know today, you're the one Jesus is looking for. He's inviting. During his days as president, Thomas Jefferson and a group of his companions were traveling across the countryside on horseback. They'd come to a river which had overflowed its banks because of a recent downpour. The swollen river had washed away the bridge, and each rider was forced to ford the river on horseback, fighting for his very life against the tide. The very real possibility of death certainly threatened each rider, and they 
took grave errors, just, I mean, uh, precautions to try to keep from being swept away with the current. And as they were forging their way across that river, there was a traveler who had showed up on the other side. And the stranger asked President Jefferson if he'd kind of ferry him across the river. He'd watched these men and he feared that he would be swept away. He, sir, would you please ferry me or help me across the river? And the president agreed without hesitation. The man climbed on and shortly thereafter, the two of them made it safely to the other side. And as the stranger slid off the back of the saddle into a dry ground, one of the group said to him, he asked him, he said, well, tell me, why did you select the president to ask this favor of? The man was rather shocked at first, and he admitted that he had no idea that that happened to be the president who had helped him. But he did say, all I know is that on some of your faces was written the answer no, and on some of them was the answer yes. His was a yes face. You know, if you desire strong, stable, and satisfying relationships, you're going to have to have a yes face and be inviting. Good luck. Good luck with those kind of relationships. You're going to have a hard time attracting anybody when you've got to look like that on your face. You know how it is. You sit in the corner all by yourself and wonder why nobody says hello. You know what I'm talking about. You're not inviting. A man that has friends must shew himself friendly, the Bible says. I don't understand it. Nobody wants to talk to me, preacher. Well, the way you look, I understand why. It was years ago. I, I remember I went on an activity with a, a singles group that I was, I was, I was with, and, and we was going downhill sledding, you know, and we had these big inner tubes and stuff. And I remember that there was a number of us that piled on one day. We layered ourselves, layered up, at least three layers high on this big inner tube. And I remember being on the bottom of the pile along with my friend beside me. And there was three or four, three of us right here lined up. I was in the middle. He was on the side. This guy was on the side. And people lined up the other way and then on the other way. And we headed down that steep hill. We were flying down that hill. The only problem was as we started down that hill, the weight shifted forward. And when the weight shifted forward, you got to understand, I mean, this was a, a hill where people were actually sledding on. We, you, you went to this one place to sled, so it was hard. It was crusty. It was icy. And we were on that sliding down that hill. We were moving fast. And all of a sudden, the weight shifted like that. And I still remember as plain as day thinking, oh no, oh no, what's going to happen to my beautiful face? But it wasn't my face. I realized as I looked over and there was my friend face down in that snow. I mean, all the weight and everybody pressuring down on him. And it was just like... I was like, get off, get off, get off. But nobody seemed to hear. And we got to the bottom of the hill. And I still remember when he finally peeled his face off of the ice. It was just... Blood and scratches and just meat. And of course, being a single, and we all laughed. But anyway, <laughs> here he was now. I mean, just looked like he'd been in a barroom brawl. No lie. 
Here he was. Pocket full of tracks now. So I'm going to pass these tracks out. Anybody want to go with me? I looked at him and I said, dude, you look like you just got out of a barroom brawl. And nobody in the world is going to want to talk to you. You're going to be scared to death. He said, I'm going to pass these tracks out, though. He went around passing tracks out. You should have seen the looks he got. He walked up to people. Oh, I mean, his face all crooked and his blood on his face. He's like, I'd just like to invite you out there. Like, taking it and kind of walking away. Like, I said, dude, we got to get out of here. I mean, nobody in their right mind wants to talk to you, man. You look like you're a drunk. Just got beat up or something. He said, I can't believe you just said that in the pulpit. Well, you know, at least I wasn't there last night. Listen to me. How you look often determines how people receive you. You got a frown on your face. You look like you just drug yourself out of bed one minute before time to start service and you walk in here all hair everywhere and this and that and just kind of walk it in like you're half a zombie. You honestly think that draws people to you? But we're talking about relationships. I mean, I don't care if it's a wife or a husband. Ladies, you ought to look nice for your husband. Hell, fellas, you ought to look nice for your, your wives. I, I, I'm going to be honest with you. You can say what you want, do what you want, but I'm going to be honest with you. I don't keep in good shape just so that I can run around here and bounce off walls every once in a while. I try to stay in good shape because every day I wake up, I want my wife to see what she married, not what became of me. She didn't marry. She, what she married is what she ought to get. And you know something? She tries to keep herself nice for me. I try to keep myself nice for her. I get a little bit perturbed when I watch these people get divorced and all of a sudden they start losing 20, 30, 40, and 50 pounds because they're back on the market. That ticks me off. If you might have lost all that weight before, maybe you'd have found something else beforehand. Oh, thank you, preacher. We appreciate that preaching now. I told you it was going to start lighting up. You're just lucky that it's lighting up late. I, listen, don't tell me you haven't seen that happen over and over again. Now, I'm not saying that you could have fixed your marriage necessarily by looking nice or trying to present yourself in a nice manner. But if you just let yourself go because you think you got it all sewed up. Well, it took a little work to get her, but now that I got her. <laughs> How you doing, baby? What's up? Are you kidding me? She's like, are you nuts, dude? You look like the Michelin man. And you were, I mean, you, you, are you kidding me? You went from looking like alfalfa, skinny as a rail, to looking like Michelin man, and I'm supposed to steal, what, what did I marry? Now, I know some of you think that's nuts. You do. You think that's not fair. It's hard to get serious in this place, isn't it? <laughs> Let's, listen, how we... Listen, he was accepted. He, 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 Jesus Christ was inviting. That's all I'm trying to get across. He, he looked the part. He, he made people want to get around him. He, provide, he opened up his heart. He opened up his life. And he had a smile on his face. You draw a lot more... What is it? Flies with honey than you do with what? How's that work? Then with vinegar, that's right. I always forget that one. And all I'm saying, I'm, I'm just saying, art of, the art of others. And listen, be inviting. 
Hey, listen, I, 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 I don't think, it, it, listen, you, you don't have to be a glamour queen. You don't have to be a, a, a you know, I don't know. I don't even want to say Rockefeller because from what I hear, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about these guys. I've got to be careful what I say anymore these days. But, but you, don't, you, you, know, you don't want to be like me, Brad Pitt looking. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, you don't have to be like that. <laughs> okay? Some of you, you don't believe me, do you? You're all there going, what? <laughs> yeah, okay, whatever. But anyway, you don't have to be all that. But at least have a smile on your face. Be happy, joy-filled, be inviting. You know, Jesus wasn't anything spectacular to look at. The Bible makes it very clear. He's a very plain man. He's very plain. But boy, I'll tell you what. He was inviting. And today I want you to know he's inviting you. And you know what, the neat thing about him is that he don't care what you look like today. He don't care what you've done in your past even. He just wants to invite you. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. There you go. Aren't you tired of your sin weighing you down? Doesn't it wear you out every day you have to deal and live with the shame and the guilt of your sin? He says, you don't have to do it anymore. I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest. Today, won't you let Jesus Christ give you rest? He's the answer. He's the solution. You may not agree with everything you heard today. You may not even like what you heard. I don't know. But what I'll tell you is one thing is this. Whether you like this preacher, you like what I said, you've got to love him. Because he's good. Jesus Christ is good. And he's worth entering into a relationship with. Father, we come to you. We thank you for all you've done for us. Thank you for the, just the, the simplicity of your truths. Help us, Lord, just to be faithful to you. We do love you. We thank you, Father, for your goodness and grace in our life. We're glad that, Father, you, you sent your Son. And we're glad that Jesus Christ, God in flesh, came here and died on Calvary to pay for our sin. And then he opens up his arms to we who are sinners, the very ones who placed him on Calvary because of our sins, and says, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Father, help us now. Lord, may there be those, if there's anyone in this room that does not know for sure if they died, heaven would be their home. If they've never invited Christ personally into their life as Savior, may they settle that today. And Lord, as believers, we've looked at a couple things. Forgiving. Being forgiving. Father, we've got to be forgiving. Lord, we need to be selfless. And we need to be inviting. Lord, if we want strong, stable, and satisfying relationships, those are characteristics and qualities. Those are tools that we need in the art of others. Help us, Lord, to be honest with ourselves today. Maybe there's someone that we need to forgive. There's a situation where we need to face it and deal with it. Help us, Lord, to be honest with you and others. May we just be freed from the prison that we've placed ourselves in with unforgiveness. And Lord, may we learn to be selfless and inviting. Lord, you'll bless us in our relationships if we'll just follow and abide in your toolbox. Well, thank you. In Christ's name, amen. Let's all stand to our feet, every head bowed, every eye closed. Piano begins to play. You need to come, you come. I don't know for sure if I died, I'd go to heaven, preacher. Well, guess what? Today's an opportunity. You can settle that. Right where you're seated, you need to step out of that closest, into the closest aisle. You need to come, and, and you need to let one somebody show you from the Bible how you can be saved, how your sin can be forgiven, how you can have a home in heaven. Won't you settle that? Won't you settle that? The most important question in your life, where will you spend eternity? As important as your wife or your, your life mate will be, your husband, 
That, that's important, yes, but nothing is as important as knowing for sure where you'll spend eternity forever. Won't you come? Won't you do that? Won't you do that? And then you're a child of God. There's a root of bitterness. There's a root of unforgiveness in your life. Won't you come? Bring that to the Lord. Offer it to Him. And then go and make it right with that person. Make it right. 